Part 1, Section 1 of The Origins of Christianity by Thomas Whittaker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Von Manen on the Pauline Literature. Part 1, The Acts of the Apostles. Section 1, The Origin of Acts. Introduction. In our investigation of the Pauline epistles and the history of Paulinism, it is desirable, first, to arrive at a judgment on the historical value of the Acts of the Apostles. Here, two opposite errors are to be avoided. The Tübingen school, assuming the genuineness of the epistles to the Romans, Corinthians, first and second, and Galatians, set aside the testimony of Acts, wherever it conflicted with what was supposed to be a direct statement of Paul. By reaction from this arbitrary procedure, the danger has arisen that the trustworthiness of the representation of Paul's life and work in Acts may, with no less arbitrariness, be taken for granted as against the representation in the epistles. In view of this, we must, for the moment, postpone the discussion of the epistles and examine the Acts of the Apostles as a book standing by itself. If we can here arrive at security, we shall have gained a foothold not to be despised for our further inquiries. Section 1. The Origin of Acts 1. The Unity of the Work We have not before us the work of an eyewitness of the events narrated, these are too far apart in time and place for the unity to be of this kind. Yet there is no doubt about the unity itself. The book is no loose stringing together of reports or traditions from various sources, but has a definite order and plan. There are references in the latter to the earlier portions of the narrative, and when the connection has been broken, it is expressly taken up again. The history, too, has a definite movement. We see Christianity spreading into wider and wider circles, from Jews to Samaritans, to God-fearing heathens like Cornelius, and then to ordinary Greeks, till at last its universal destination is made visible. The apostles come to the consciousness of this by degrees. It is true that we may speak of a Petrine and of a Pauline part of the Acts, but these have numerous interconnections. Like the third gospel, this second book of Luke, as we may call the writer for convenience, is a rounded-off whole. Note, there is no reason, as von Manen remarks, for rejecting the tradition which assigns the third gospel and the Acts of the Apostles to the same author. The author, however, was not Luke, the companion of Paul mentioned in the epistles. A conjecture is offered later to account for the attachment of his name to the two works. End note. The appearance of incompleteness, due to the abrupt conclusion, is only apparent that Paul was to die at Rome had been already hinted. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, chapter 21, verse 4, 
and 11 through 14, chapter 27, verses 23 and 24. For not actually mentioning his death, as it took place there according to tradition, the reason most probably was that the writer did not wish to arouse prejudice on the part of the Romans, whom it was his object to prepossess in favor of Christianity. The persistency with which that aim is kept in view is another proof of the unity of the work. The Jews are represented as rejecting and persecuting the new way, the Romans as benevolently disposed towards it, and as taking its missionaries under their protection. No speaker for the cause of Christianity fails to make it clear that, although Pilate gave his assent to the death of Jesus, the guilt was with the Jews. Persecution of Christianity, the writer is bent on showing, had never, in those days, taken its origin from the Romans. How, then, it is implicitly argued, can another line of action now be taken against the people, everywhere spoken against, though they might be, whose great apostle had been constantly moving about in the heathen world, and had himself been a Roman citizen. Note, this, as we shall see later, was probably a fiction of Luke. The apology directed to the Roman points, of course, to the second century, which is indicated by various other circumstances as the period when the book assumed its present form. End note. No difference as regards the universal destination of the gospel is represented as existing between Peter and Paul. Peter speaks of himself as chosen from ancient days to preach the gospel among the heathen. Chapter 15, verse 7. None of the chiefs raise any objections to the un-Jewish proceedings of Paul and Barnabas. On the other side, Paul displays no hostility to the brethren at Jerusalem. As a rule, he does not address himself to the heathen till forced by the obstinacy of the Jews. He is, from the first, in vital and constant relations with the mother community, and submits to its decisions. And in every forward step that he takes, he has been preceded by someone else. To all, he consistently proclaims his belief in the law. Note, it is this representation in particular that is in such glaring contradiction with that of Galatians, and led directly, the epistles being supposed genuine, to the assumption of the general untrustworthiness of acts. End note. The style, which remains the same with few exceptions, even in the speeches of different persons, is another proof of the unity of the book. This casting of all into a certain form, however, does not prove the whole to be a work of poetic reflection, or the persons a free creation. Neither is it simply contemporary history plus tradition. Luke also had written sources. 2. Its Composition The evidences, indeed, of imaginative reconstruction are plain. 
Peter could not, in addressing his fellow countrymen, have spoken of the Jewish authorities as your rulers, chapter 3, verse 17, nor of the sending of the Son of God first to Israel, chapter 3, verse 26. In the vehement outburst at the end of Stephen's speech, we hear the voice, not of Stephen himself over against the Sanhedrin, but of the later Christianity against the Judaism from which it had separated, and which had since had abundant opportunity to resist the Holy Ghost. It is a similar dramatic transference of the ideas of the present to the past, when Paul and Barnabas turn to the Gentiles, chapter 13, verse 46. Readers are to be made to feel that Paul is compelled to take this step because the Jews have rejected the grace of God. This is also the effect aimed at in the bitter and at the same time foolish outburst of Paul against the Jews at Corinth, chapter 18, verse 6. That the work is not a free composition all through is shown, however, by the intermingling of inconsistent traditions. In the account of the speaking with tongues, the older tradition, that it was an affection, such as is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, is fused with the newer, that it was a gift instantaneously conferred of speaking foreign languages. To the latter, the accusation of being drunk could have no relevance. Sometimes it is the imparting of the Holy Ghost, sometimes it is baptism, that is the mark of the Christian. In chapter 11, verse 16, the being baptized with the Holy Ghost of the Christians is set over against the baptizing with water of John. In the other tradition, to receive the Holy Ghost is a special gift independent of baptism. Again, in chapter 19, verse 5, converts at Ephesus are to be rebaptized after having been baptized with the baptism of John, that they may receive the Holy Ghost. With this is connected another double tradition. On the one side, the apostles are clearly indicated as the highest authority among Christians. They have a doctrine which is to be adhered to, chapter 2, verse 42. Work miracles, have the power of life and death, appoint deacons, remain as a high court at Jerusalem, send out missionaries. All submit to their dogmas, chapter 16, verse 4. Luke, however, knows a different tradition, according to which the highest authority among Christians is the Holy Ghost, by which the overseers of the flock are directly appointed. Chapter 20, verse 28. Sometimes he attempts to combine these two traditions, as, for example, when the decision of the council at Jerusalem is put in the form, It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. Chapter 15, verse 28. The eldest community is, on the one hand, represented as an ideal of love and harmony. On the other hand, there are such circumstances 
as the contention among the widows that led to the appointment of deacons. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The small-minded quarreling about eating with heathen converts, and so forth. The community spreads rapidly, and yet can remain long undisturbed at Jerusalem. It has favor with all the people. Chapter 2, verse 47 and yet is subjected from the first to mockery and persecutions. Paul has scarcely gone over to Christianity when his life is threatened. Luke knows different answers to the question, who first made converts among the heathen? One account would ascribe this to the evangelist Philip, another to Peter, a third to certain men of Cyprus and Cyrene chapter 11 verses 19 through 22 a fourth to paul and barnabas chapter 13 verses 46 through 49 a fifth to paul and no one else to this end was paul chosen by the lord from the first chapter 9 verse 15 chapter 22 verse 21 chapter 26 verses 16 through 18 the presence of this tradition is especially evident in Luke's abrupt way of making him turn his back on the Jews, to whom he has only just addressed himself. About Paul himself, the traditions are inconsistent. He is a young man, apparently of no special importance, at the time of the death of Stephen, and yet is old enough to become immediately afterwards the moving spirit of a bloody persecution which ceases when he goes over to Christianity. Chapter 9, verse 31. He is represented as a contemporary of the apostles, and in constant relations with them. Yet, on his last visit to Jerusalem, he is received not by the apostles, but only by the brethren. Altogether, it is here as if we were in a later generation. Luke knows the tradition according to which his calling was not of men, but from the risen Lord. He knows also an account in which Ananias plays an important part in his conversion. In accordance with this representation, Paul seeks and gains access to the apostles, obeys their directions, and submits to their decisions. Luke has a double view as to the circle in which he was called to work. Sometimes he is represented as having the heathen pointed out to him from the first as the goal of his endeavors. Among his converts, Greeks are especially mentioned. Where the heathen converts come from, however, is not always clear. At Borea, for example, nothing can be inferred from the context but that they came from the synagogue of the Jews chapter 17 verse 12 at athens he both visits the synagogue and speaks publicly to all alike to james and the presbyters at jerusalem chapter 21 verse 19 he has nothing to report on his activity among the jews but tells what god has done among the gentiles by his ministry according to another conception of that ministry it always began with the jews and it had some success among them. They are put in the first place among those addressed at Athens. 
chapter 17, verse 17, though we hear nothing of them there afterwards. The Jews look upon him as having to do especially with them, since they are constantly accusing him and raising tumults against him. He is regarded by them as their special enemy. Chapter 21, verse 28. On the substance also of Paul's preaching, Luke knows a double tradition. According to one conception of it, not only the Athenians, but the Jews, and even the first Christians, would have had a right to speak of his new doctrine, and to call him a setter forth of strange gods. Jesus is proclaimed no longer as the Christ, in the sense of the Messiah promised to Israel, but as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, newly revealed, and the object of a faith which justifies and saves, as the law cannot do. Through him is forgiveness of sins. The grace of God and eternal life are for the believers in Christ. Paul does not preach the God of the Jews, but a God hitherto unknown. Chapter 17, verse 23. This God dwells not in temples made with hands, hence not in the shrine at Jerusalem. Paul's Jewish and primitive Christian opponents alike know well that he does not really keep the law. Side by side with this, however, there is another representation, according to which he simply taught that Christ, the Jewish Messiah, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Chapter 17, verse 3. The content of his preaching is not, as elsewhere, the new gospel of the grace of God, but the traditional kingdom of God. Chapter 19, verse 8, etc. Into which Christians must enter through much tribulation. Chapter 16, verse 22. He has done nothing against his people or its law, of which he has been from first to last a scrupulous observer. Chapter 28, verse 17, chapter 21, verses 20 through 27. Even as a Christian, he is a worshiper of the God of his fathers. Chapter 24, verse 14. Luke endeavors to reconcile these two views by their simple juxtaposition. This may be seen in the peculiar form of statement about Paul's preaching. For example, chapter 9, verse 20. To preach Jesus, and that this is the Son of God, may still be discerned as two conceptions, which have not arrived at complete fusion. As might be conjectured from his introduction to the third gospel, Luke has drawn for these various traditions partly on written sources. This can be proved by a direct examination of Acts. Various confusions and contradictions in the narrative are explicable by a partially free working up of material, together with retention, to a certain extent, of the very phrases of the documents. The words, through the Holy Ghost, in chapter 1 verse 2, have the appearance of an interpolation by someone who wished to say that Jesus taught by the Holy Spirit before his ascension, a statement really inconsistent with chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, according to which the disciples were to wait at Jerusalem for it to be given. 
if there is no reason to think that the interpolator was any one but the author of the book then we may suppose him to have extended a sentence which he took over from some previous narrator and not to have noticed the effect of the addition a similar explanation will apply to the confused passage verses twelve through fifteen so also to gamaliel's warning in verses thirty eight through thirty nine which obviously breaks the connection the representations and the interrupted connection in the account of the death of stephen may be similarly explained by insertions from luke's hand in a narrative on which he worked the account of simon magus points to the use of two different sources in one of which the effect produced by the preaching of philip was celebrated while in the other the samaritan magician was represented as trying to get the holy ghost at his disposal like the apostles passing over other instances of imperfect redaction we come to the passages of which chapter sixteen verse ten offers the first example where the narrative changes from the third person to the first this points to the literal taking over of fragments from an itinerary and will occupy us later in the meantime one or two cases may be noted that come further on in the book the areopagus where paul is said to have delivered his discourse at athens chapter seventeen verse nineteen was a law court here was no place where every one was at liberty to expound his theology to passers-by perhaps luke found it stated in the source he used that at athens as elsewhere paul had had to defend himself before the legal authorities this would explain the circumstance that those who brought him to the areopagus are said to have laid hold of him the author working over this in his own way imagined an encounter with philosophers curious to hear a new doctrine set forth in chapter nineteen verse fourteen seven sons of sceva are spoken of they are afterwards chapter nineteen verse sixteen referred to as both the probable explanation is that luke curtailed the intermediate narrative transcribing literally the portions of it which he took over lastly observe what seems the hopeless confusion of chapter twenty verses four and five where those who followed are said to have gone before there were then written sources can we ascertain what those sources were three sources pauline letters were our epistles of paul among the sources of one thing there is no doubt the author nowhere makes mention of a letter written by paul however this may be explained it does not lead us to expect diligent use in his work of a collection of pauline epistles exact investigation of the details entirely supports the presumption if we do not take for granted that the epistles being older must have been used some points of detail seem to show that the writer knew pauline letters perhaps a collection and borrowed one or two things from them but such points are not numerous for example 
the resemblance between acts chapter fifteen and galatians chapter two is so striking in spite of much difference that we are justified in supposing one of the accounts of the apostolic meeting to have been known to the writer of the other unless we suppose dependence on a common source if the last supposition is thought improbable then it is the writer of acts who must have had the corresponding passage of galatians in his eye for had the dependence been the other way the writer of galatians could not have failed to appeal to the concessions made to the heathen converts not only by peter but by james himself who figures in galatians as the most decided opponent of paul on the other hand some of the details in galatians would not at all have served the purpose of luke with his endeavor towards reconciliation of the rival parties hence he would be inclined to omit them the itinerary in the second or pauline part of acts there are some pieces where the writer speaks in the first person plural namely chapter sixteen verses ten through seventeen chapter twenty verses five through fifteen chapter twenty one verses one through eighteen chapter twenty seven verse one through chapter twenty eight verse sixteen these although we shall find no reason against the view that they contain portions of a diary written by a fellow traveller of paul cannot as they stand have formed part of such a diary for this they are too much worked up into the historical form of the book and show too many traces of modification in accordance with that form take the fourth of them which includes the account of the shipwreck many circumstances indicate that in the earlier narrative paul made his voyage from caesarea to rome not as a prisoner but with his friends as a free man those who accompanied him to jerusalem chapter twenty one verse sixteen or at least a part of them are still with him at caesarea when he sets out for italy namely the companions spoken of as we together with aristarchus of thessalonica already mentioned as a travelling companion chapter twenty seven verse two compare chapter twenty verse four this suggests a short stay at caesarea after the visit to jerusalem rather than a two years imprisonment details are preserved as to paul's treatment on board ship which seem natural in the case of one who is making a voyage freely but not in the case of a prisoner the texture of the narrative shows discontinuities at the points when his bonds are spoken of in chapter twenty seven verse three for example the reference to the centurion breaks the connection the account of what took place on the island of melita bears marks even in the grammar as is to be observed in chapter twenty eight verse two of the fusion of an original narrative with more or less legendary anecdotes when the fragments are disentangled they present themselves as a plain statement of the experiences of a single journey no fragments from the same source can be detected in any passages 
but the four constituting this we narrative as it is called the view of some critics that the author preserved the form because he wished to pass himself off as a travelling companion of paul must be rejected on the ground that if that had been his aim we should expect the first person plural to be used in all the accounts of paul's journey luke takes no pains to conceal from his readers that he is other than the we of the passages in question the very fact that he is a skilful writer goes to show that if he had intended to convey the misleading impression that he was an eye-witness all through he would have taken other means the we narrative does not supply us with a full account of paul's activity its character is that of external note-taking and even in its original form it cannot have been a composition aiming at any sort of completeness as far as it goes however there is no single reason for regarding it as other than the work of an eye-witness or as untrustworthy who the author was we can only guess that he was a jew by birth may be inferred from his use of the jewish calendar chapter twenty verse six chapter twenty seven verse nine such data as there are point to the luke of pauline tradition second timothy chapter four verse eleven philemon verse twenty four colossians chapter four verse fourteen this assignment of authorship would have the advantage of explaining how the whole of acts together with the third gospel came to be assigned to luke to return to our luke the author of acts whence did he get his other data about paul which he combined with the diary it is necessary as we shall soon find to suppose that he drew on a narrative written before his own time but after the time when the diary was written probably the diary was already incorporated with this narrative when he took it over otherwise we should have to suppose that it had survived till then unused from the narrative then extant or from tradition he got the datum about paul's imprisonment the original form of this story may be preserved in the assertion first met with in eusebius ecclesiastical history book two section twenty two that paul was imprisoned a second time at rome in the earlier narrative we may suppose the apostle was arrested on some accusation relating to his activity in rome itself whither he had come as a freed man and the imprisonment that followed was the only one mentioned next the arrest was transferred to jerusalem as in the narrative of acts which represents him as conveyed in bonds from caesarea to rome then finally the account in acts having in the meantime become authoritative the single imprisonment at rome was described as a second imprisonment of course it does not follow that the earlier tradition itself is historical acts of paul 
notwithstanding all resemblances in style and treatment, a difference at once strikes the reader between the so-called Petrine and Pauline parts of the book. That is to say, in general and exceptions allowed for, between chapters 1 through 12 and chapters 13 through 28. The latter part is livelier, fresher, it gives the impression of being less legendary and more true. The writer seems to stand closer to the facts. The details confirm this impression, and point to one principal source used by Luke for this part of his work. That source, in accordance with the known titles of books of the kind, we may call the Acts of Paul. The use of the Acts of Paul first becomes conspicuous in the description of Paul's so-called first missionary journey with Barnabas. In the original account, as is still evident, chapter 13, verses 2 and 4, they were sent on their mission directly by the Holy Ghost. The statement that they were sent by the community, chapter 13, verse 3, is in obvious contradiction with what goes before and after. Paul, as in most places still, and not Barnabas, as in verses 1, 2, and 7, was everywhere the chief person. He was called Paul from the first, and not at the beginning Saul, verses 1 through 9, and then abruptly and without reason assigned Paul, bar Jesus, chapter 13, verses 6 through 12, was originally neither a sorcerer nor a Jew, but a type of the pre-Pauline Christians, with their dread of the new doctrine preached by the men full of the Holy Ghost. From the Acts of Paul, Luke may have borrowed some expressions in the speech at the Pisidian Antioch, chapter 13, verses 16 through 41. As, for example, that through Christ forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, verse 38, that through him everyone that believes is justified, verse 39. This was the Pauline gospel of faith and grace. Compare chapter 13, verse 43. Some things from the Pauline document have been taken up into the earlier chapters of Acts. This is probably the case with the mention of Barnabas, chapter 4, verses 36 through 37, whose name originally belonged not to the community at Jerusalem, but to the circle of Paul at Antioch. Compare chapters 13 through 15. All the names of the seven appointed to serve tables chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, are Greek, and suggest that the deacons were non-Jews. It may be conjectured that in the earlier account they were neither appointed by the twelve nor at Jerusalem. To suppose a preponderantly heathen Christian community already there is inconsistent with the representation in other parts of Acts. Compare chapter 21, verse 20. Luke may have derived the account from the Acts of Paul, where it had reference to events outside Palestine, and transferred it to Jerusalem. 
the same conjecture applies to the martyrdom of stephen accused of attributing to jesus the purpose of changing the mosaic law chapter six verse fourteen the account of a violent effort to uproot christianity starting from jerusalem in which saul paul played a leading part has been transferred probably but not certainly from damascus there are passages in which not only the apostles but the brethren also are described as remaining in quiet at jerusalem while the execution of james the brother of john is mentioned as an isolated event chapter 12 verse 2 and the passage in galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 22 where paul describes himself as having persecuted the church of god assumes that he was resident at damascus at the time of his conversion and not at jerusalem whether luke found the persecution by paul and his conversion already side by side in the acts of paul or brought them together must remain uncertain in the chapters containing the main body of the acts of paul the following points are to be noted the account of the gathering at jerusalem chapter 15 verses 1 through 33 as a whole and in the form in which we have it cannot have come from that source the paul of paulinism is to be seen rather in passages where the opposition between his direction and that of the judaizers among the chiefs is more pronounced the declaration of paul that he is a roman citizen comes from luke with his desire to place christianity in a favorable light before the romans this tendency was foreign to the acts of paul the representation also that paul went first to the jews belongs to luke's redaction the converts that he had read of in his source were especially greeks as at berea chapter 17 verse 12 luke prepares the way for turning the pre-pauline christians of ephesus to whom the paul of the earlier document made known the holy ghost chapter 19 verses 1 through 7 into disciples of john the baptist to his hand is due the town clerk's apology for the christians he manipulates paul's statement at jerusalem chapter 21 verse 39 that he is of tarsus no mean city by making him insist at the same time that he is a jew this can be inferred from the peculiarity of the antithesis the force of which is a jew though of tarsus moreover it is known from epiphanius against heresies chapter thirty paragraph sixteen that certain ebionites probably in their own version of the acts of paul preserved the original reading in which there is no mention of paul's jewish origin and in which the reminder to the less instructed reader where tarsus is namely in cilicia does not occur luke's modification 
effected by stages, in the events at Jerusalem, as recounted in the Acts of Paul, may be detected in the changing representation of his opponents, first as Judaizing Christians among the believers there, chapter 21, verse 20, then as Jews from Asia, chapter 21, verse 27, lastly as the Jews, in general, together with the Sanhedrin. In the earlier story, they would seem to have included anti-Pauline Christians. To escape the tumult raised by them, Paul was conducted to Caesarea by the faithful brethren, introduced too early by Luke. Chapter 9, verse 29 through 30. Thence he went to Rome as a free man. How the Acts of Paul ended, we can only conjecture. But it seems likely that an account was given of his imprisonment at Rome and his death there as a martyr, hinted at by Luke, but omitted, in accordance with his apologetic aim, in relation to the Roman government. An uncanonical book entitled Acts of Paul is referred to by Eusebius. Was this identical with the Acts of Paul mentioned by Origen? Or do both writers refer to the book used, perhaps in an earlier redaction, by Luke? It is not impossible, but we are not advanced by the supposition since there is no material for judging of the contents of the book outside the canonical acts of the apostles. According to the best judgment we can form, it presents itself as too full of legendary stories to have been written by a contemporary of Paul. The really contemporary record of the we narrative, as has been said, was probably worked up into it by the unknown author. The date of the Acts of Paul may be placed, provisionally, not earlier than the end of the first century, before which time the outlines of the remodeled Christianity known as Paulinism cannot be conceived to have fixed themselves. This, however, is somewhat to anticipate the result of discussion of the epistles. The Pauline substratum in the Acts of the Apostles must be placed earlier than the earliest of these. For, while the direction of thought that appears there has much in common with that of the Epistles, no use is made of them, and an epistolary activity of Paul is in no way alluded to. Acts of Peter the particular document which forms the basis of the first twelve chapters of our canonical Acts may be called, most conveniently, the Acts of Peter. It is a counterpart of the Acts of Paul, and was evidently written with the Paul of the older document as a model. For the hypothesis of independent origin, the parallelisms with the story of Paul are too numerous, and this hypothesis being excluded, the exaggerations of the legendary and miraculous element in what is related of Peter show the narrative of which he is the hero to be secondary. Contrast, for example, the account of his deliverance from prison by an angel, chapter 12, verses 3 through 19, 
with the account of Paul's deliverance at Philippi, chapter 16, verses 19 through 40. The latter leaves open the interpretation that it is the form assumed in tradition by some historical event, whereas the first is evidently nothing but a miracle story. The possibility, and even the probability, that the writer made use here and there of traditions that had come to him from other sources is not excluded. But the way in which, always with the aim of glorifying Peter and his circle, he follows in the steps of his Pauline predecessor, makes it improbable that he had command of any rich independent Petrine tradition. His purpose was not historical, in our sense of the word, but was to give Peter a concrete life and activity, and to write his acts so as to make him comparable to Paul. Josephus That the author of the Acts of the Apostles made use of Josephus among his sources is shown by many details of the narrative. Perhaps the parallelism of the phenomena said to have accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, with the portents described by Josephus as prophetic of the destruction of Jerusalem, the wars of the Jews, book 6, chapter 5, paragraph 3, may be taken as evidence. There are, however, clearer traces than this, and other such small coincidences. The mention of Theudas and of Judas the Galilean in Gamaliel's speech, chapter 5, verses 36 through 37, is due, evidently, to an imperfect recollection of what the author had read in Josephus. Antiquities, book 20, chapter 5, paragraphs 1 and 2, where the Theudas mentioned, and with him the sons of Judas the Galilean, belong to a later time than that to which Luke assigns the events he makes Gamaliel describe. The Egyptian, for whom Paul was taken at Jerusalem, chapter 21, verse 38, is the unnamed prophet out of Egypt, whose expedition, with its defeat by Felix, is recorded by Josephus. Antiquities, book 20, chapter 8, paragraph 6, Wars of the Jews, book 2, chapter 13, paragraph 5. The word sikari, applied to his adherents, is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It occurs often in Josephus, though not in the two passages referred to, and apparently in no other Greek author. Luke's tendency here is manifest. He seizes the opportunity of illustrating his implied thesis that any harsh treatment of a Christian by Romans must be due to some misunderstanding. In making his Paul predict that God shall smite the high priest Ananias, chapter 23, verse 3, he probably had in memory that the same high priest, whose slaves used to smite those who would not submit to his exactions, Antiquities, book 20, chapter 9, paragraph 2, as he commanded that Paul should be smitten, chapter 23, verse 2 had died a violent death. 
Wars of the Jews, Book 2, Chapter 17, Paragraph 3. The chief personages connected with Paul's imprisonment and trial, Felix and Drusilla, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice, are all taken from Josephus. Luke puts together a well-constructed narrative on the basis of their characters as depicted by the Jewish historian, but has no independent, authentic tradition to work on. The narrative itself is an insertion by him in the Acts of Paul. The coincidence with Josephus in the introduction of Festus is even verbal. Compare chapter 24, verse 27, with Antiquities, book 20, chapter 8, paragraph 9. The whole serves the purpose of showing how Christianity, while it was persecuted by the fanatical Jews, was protected by the Roman authorities. 4. General view of the use of sources. From an examination of the whole work, we see how the author now freely recasts the materials in his own manner, now holds himself bound by the words of his documents. A favorite mode of transition with him is the apparently exact, but really indeterminate, and in those days, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 27, compare Luke chapter 1, verse 39, etc., or at that time, chapter 12, verse 1. At intervals, he introduces his beloved refrain about the increase of the communities and the growth of the word, chapter 5, verse 14, chapter 12, verse 24. Such an abrupt intrusion as that of Saul identified with Paul into the account of the death of Stephen strikes the eye at once. The establishment of a heathen Christian community at Antioch by Paul and Barnabas, taken over from the Acts of Paul, is modified by the introduction of unknown men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Chapter 11, verse 19 through 26 of whom we hear no more. As the last verse shows, the founding of the community was originally ascribed to Paul and his associate Barnabas. This illustrates the method of accommodation by which the Paul of the Paulinists had precursors given him in the preaching of the gospel to the heathen. Paul's gathering of alms for the brethren at Jerusalem which would seem to have been assigned in the Acts of Paul to a later date, is brought by Luke into connection with what he had read in Josephus about a famine in the reign of Claudius. Chapter 11, verse 28. Compare Antiquities, Book 20, Chapter 2, Paragraph 6, and Chapter 5, Paragraph 2. He describes the death of Herod with circumstances remembered from Josephus. Antiquities, Book 19, Chapter 8, Paragraph 2. That he gives the name of Silas to the member of the Pauline circle called in the epistles Silvanus is explained by the fact that Silas is the only form of that proper name met with in Josephus. Silas and Barnabas are brought arbitrarily into connection with the community at Jerusalem 
in the pauline tradition preserved in other passages they were connected with antioch the circumcision of timothy by paul chapter 16 verses 1 through 3 counterbalances the non-circumcision of titus galatians chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 who perhaps as too much identified with the extreme pauline school is not mentioned in acts when the chief of the synagogue at corinth is called crispus chapter 18 verse 8 instead of sosthenes chapter 18 verse 17 this is probably due to a reminiscence of first corinthians chapter 1 verse 14 5 the author's aim various intentions have been ascribed to luke's work each of them in a manner correctly so long as none is held to furnish by itself a complete explanation he did not need to begin the reconciliation of the petronists and the paulinists since others notably the author of the acts of peter had preceded him in this but he consciously manipulates his data in the same direction the approximation as has already been pointed out is from both sides peter from the beginning recognizes that the gospel though first offered to the jews is for all who shall be called chapter 2 verse 39 paul is obedient both to the law and to the other apostles and makes it his custom to preach first to the jews only afterwards turning to the gentiles yet it would be an error to describe such reconciliation as luke's predominant aim even the apologetic aim with regard to the roman authorities though this belongs peculiarly to his redaction and not to any of his sources must be described as the purpose of the whole what he does by his way of presenting the relations of jews and christians and romans is tacitly to invite the romans to continue the protective attitude towards christianity which according to the story they had taken up at first he combines this however with other purposes such as that of drawing clearly the line between judaism and christianity smoothing over the existing differences among christians and so forth and in the end it would be unjust not to recognize that his essential purpose is correctly described by himself at the opening of the third gospel of which the book of acts according to his own statement is a continuation what he primarily had in view was to give more exact instruction to christian converts as to the events on which their faith was founded his purpose was to write history in a sense sacred history if you like six his personality he was evidently not a jew but rather a greek or a greek-speaking roman the jews always present themselves as men with whom he has nothing in common his general tolerance and his sympathetic attitude towards christians on all sides do not extend to them penetrated with the catholic thought of the unity between peter and paul he puts texts side by side to which the opposite parties can appeal 
yes and no on the same page these by their juxtaposition are to serve as a sign that the old differences have become antiquated for the leaders especially they never existed among christians all was that is it ought to have been harmony from the first where was the book written for alexandria as also for any place in greece there is little to be said one living in a hellenic environment would hardly have spoken as luke does of the way in which the athenians spent their time chapter seventeen verse twenty one and would have known that at athens there were altars to unknown gods but not to the unknown god the quantity of traditional material from asia minor gives ground for inference regarding the acts of paul rather than the final redaction for the place of origin of this most circumstances point to rome the writer inserts information about the place or people in referring to jerusalem chapter one verse twelve chapter twenty three verse eight macedonia chapter sixteen verse twelve athens chapter seventeen verse twenty one and crete chapter twenty seven verses eight twelve and sixteen but not in referring to places in italy there it is as if he was on familiar ground compare chapter twenty eight verses twelve thirteen and fifteen latinisms occur as for example at the very beginning chapter one verse one above all rome was the special seat of the rising catholicism and it is not to the pagan state and its citizens generally that luke directs his apologetics but definitely to the romans there are many indications that the book was composed a considerable time after the age of the apostles that it was written after the year seventy is certain the destruction of jerusalem being presupposed in the author's first book luke chapter twenty one verses twenty through twenty four and there are marks of a much later origin the writer knows of discord that has arisen in the community at ephesus after the departure of paul chapter twenty verse twenty nine the christian community or church has long been established it has its official elders or presbyters christianity while fully conscious of its internal continuity with the ancient israel has broken with the jews and sees itself obliged to appeal to the men in authority among the heathen the time has arrived when it has to make good its right to exist as an independent religion altogether the canonical acts of the apostles cannot be assigned to an earlier date than about one twenty five the time of its composition may be reasonably placed between one twenty five and one fifty end of part one section one